E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Perrington, and I'm an Associate Policy Scientist with the University of Delaware's Partnership for Public Education. I am joined today by Dr. Martha Buell, a professor specializing in early childhood education in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Delaware. Her research has been published in Early Childhood Research Quarterly, Journal of Research in Childhood Education, Early Education and Development, and more. Today, we've invited her to speak about a project she's been working on, which explores exclusionary discipline in early childhood education. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Buell. Thank you. Dr. Buell, you recently received a grant to support your work analyzing early childhood programs, policy, and licensing documentation across all 50 states and five U.S. territories for a language describing exclusionary discipline with your colleagues, Dr. Jason Hustet and Rena Hollum. Before we begin, can you explain what disciplinary exclusion is for our listeners? Yes, sure. Exclusionary discipline is when a child does something that a caregiver or an adult doesn't like, they remove them (laughs) from the situation. And it's a continuum. So at the very sort of mildest level, it would be considered a timeout. But a timeout, you know, is a timeout from positive reinforcement. So all of this is based in a behavioral discipline lens, right? So it's rewards and punishments. And so time out from positive reinforcement is just the remover of that reinforcing positive experience that a child has participating in a program. And so it goes all the way from that, you know, brief time out all the way to expulsion, permanent removal. And it's everything in between those two pieces. So it's that removing a child from from the classroom experience as a consequence of a behavior that was not welcome. Okay. So now that I'm thinking more about this and the definition you provided, I'm wondering, do some children experience exclusionary discipline more often than others? I'm thinking about the potential for some behaviors to be targeted more frequently, like rough or loud play. But there seems to be a lot of room for different biases to play a role in who gets excluded. Oh my gosh. Yes. This is why I'm studying this. And this is why it is, in my opinion, such a problem. Because exclusionary discipline is not applied uniformly across all children and all behaviors. So there's definitely identifiable groups of children. And this is the good data on suspension and expulsion comes from the civil rights database. So we know that boys make up the the greatest majority of all children that get removed from school in some way. But African-American children also are excluded at higher rates than are Caucasian children. And children with disabilities are excluded much more frequently than children who don't have disabilities. And children who've experienced more adverse childhood experience, so ACEs, they are removed more frequently. But there's other things that are sort of just sort of strange. And it's like tall children get excluded more often. And it's because they look older. 
so there's definitely differences in who gets excluded. And there is some research that says it's not only who gets excluded, but what you had said before, the behaviors that you get excluded on. And so that when white children are excluded, it's more often for something that's objectively identifiable. For instance, you threw a chair. But children of color, it's more subjective. You were too loud, right? I mean, because what is too loud, right? You don't have a an actual measure of that. It's not objective. And if you look at the intersection of, of those characteristics, you see that some children are just I would say really at high risk for being excluded, for, for experiencing exclusionary discipline. If you are an African-American boy with a disability, you have a bunch of risk factors, You know, and, and if you were tall, have a bunch of these risk factors. And remember, I'm talking about young children, really young children, right? So it's behaviors, it's it's big body play, it's rough and tumble play, it's behavior that could be construed as possibly dangerous that gets the heavy hand of exclusionary discipline applied. But that big body play, rough and tumble play, that is developmentally appropriate. And we do see very often that boys are more likely to participate in that kind of play than girls who do tend to be more verbal. So the behaviors that are excluded are often behaviors that are supposed to be there for children. And so that is another problem with all this. It's the children who get excluded but it's also the behaviors that get excluded. And if you put the two together, you can see that it gets amplified in that way too. Okay, so I'm thinking about the more extreme end of exclusionary discipline, like being expelled or removed from the classroom or from from school. But it isn't something that I, I guess I naturally associate with early childhood education. And maybe it's because suspension or expulsion is something I connect more with like high school or older students, but also because so many parents rely on early childhood programs for childcare during the work week. So what are the current policies regarding exclusionary discipline and do they differ across states and territories? Right. These are really, really important questions. And I think your first question about, you know, what do parents do if their child is made to leave? Early childhood programs are in large part a workforce support for parents, right? And, and we have to think about it in that perspective. From the federal government's end of things, the funding for early care and education is really positioned to be a workforce support. So really looking to make sure that we maximize available childcare programming for families that need it so that families can go to work or school or what have you. So the programs are not part of a K-12 unified kind of system. They're really small businesses, mostly small private businesses. And it is from that perspective that the licensing gets tricky because what you are licensing is a independent business person's ability to run their business as they see fit. And so there is a tension, especially in childcare licensing, around what you can tell programs to do or not do. Now, one of the ways that they have solved it is the federal funding that goes in that pays for the subsidies. There is new regulations that say you have to have a suspension and expulsion policy and you have to be working towards mitigating the suspension and expulsion rate within your state's programs. But 
it varies across the states what what states are willing to tell these independent business people as far as what kinds of regulations they have to follow to operate their business. So we've got some states that are very clear about it. You can't suspend or expel children for behavioral issues. And if there are issues that you are having trouble dealing with, these are resources within our state. These are mental health resources that you can draw upon. These are supports you can get. And so they really put pieces in place that, okay, so we have to do something other than suspension or expulsion. So here's how we're going to help you do that because the child's disruptive and it's it's categorized as being a safety risk. And we do have children that do experience extremely disruptive behavior in early care and education programs. There's biting, there is throwing of blocks and pushing. And, and because you have a classroom full of small children that can't necessarily defend themselves, people get very protective. So, so there really is this safety of the classroom mindset. I think we can debate what is safe behavior that's appropriate versus safe behavior that's that's destructive. You know, biting clearly not something we can let stand, right? But running, how is that really unsafe? So that just runs the gamut from states that have, you know, supports in place to try to help programs get past using exclusionary discipline to deal with behavior problems to states that say we're not going to, we don't have anything in our policies and programs don't have to have them. They can do what they want. And that gets to how regulatory the climate is within a state as far as small businesses go. NAEP divides the country up into regions that look a lot like the census divisions, right? So What's really interesting is the group that they categorize as the West, right? So the the states that are in the West. So the eastern end of the West is Montana and Wyoming and, you know, those mountain states, right? And then the, the far is the Pacific West, right? Alaska, California, Hawaii, that are Pacific Rim states. And there's a lot of difference between the Pacific Rim states and those Mountain West states, because the Mountain West states tend to really not regulate much of anything. I mean, it's a very open-ended, small policy manuals. And then we've got states on the more eastern end, both north and south. And there's examples of this across both that some states that are highly regulated do a lot of stuff, try to really prevent it, and other states that don't. But but something that's also really important to remember is that if there's guidance, it's around child behavior. Like you can't suspend because of child behavior. They allow suspension expulsion for parent behaviors, i.e. not paying your tuition, i.e picking up your child late from the program and things like that. And one could argue that we actually need supports for those parent end of things as well, right? Because expulsion is expulsion. And, you know, whether it's for a child's negative behaviors or because the parent is struggling to get their lives organized and get the tuition payment in on time, they both have the same effect on children, which is really negative. What is known about the effect of exclusionary discipline on young children and their families? So another really good question. Exclusionary discipline is a a continuum. But the data that we know about, the negative effects, are really that data that we have on children who have been suspended 
and expelled. And when we look at those children who have experienced that level of disruption, they have much lower academic outcomes. They're much more likely to actually drop out of school as early as middle childhood. They're much more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. And they're much more likely to eventually, as an adult, wind up in prison. And that's where we get this term, the preschool to prison pipeline. And the preschool to prison pipeline, you know, you, 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 the first valve that gets opened on that pipeline is, is experience of exclusionary discipline at a very young age. I understand that one of the major goals of the grant that you are working on is to develop a more streamlined regulatory framework that state and federal administrators can use to improve childhood care options for families. What do you envision this looks like and what steps are states taking to prevent or mitigate exclusionary discipline? Well, as I said, states are are trying out a bunch of strategies, and there is a wide range of state solutions. And we did one short one-pager just calling out different sections of state child care development plans where they've actually put in pieces that would mitigate suspension and expulsion. And, and different states, and it's states from every region of the country. They've got, you know, good pieces everywhere, pieces that they can build on. Infant early childhood mental health consultation, I think, is really going to show up to be a durable strategy, having someone that can come in and really assess what's going on and offer suggestions for how to change the environment to support more positive behavior. But as far as the system, see, this is the other piece that I think makes a big difference here. We're talking about a bunch of different systems. So we've got state pre-K, which has its own set of policies in many states. And some state pre-Ks have policies that both come from the Department of Ed K-12 side of things and from like a child or Office of Early Childhood Health and Human Services. Like So, so there's some policy um, alignment that needs to be done even within one program stream. But if you put on top of that program stream, we've got the child care licensing regulations. We've also got these things, the quality rating improvement systems, the QRISs. They have policies in place that, that give different levels of quality to programs, often associated with funding, based on characteristics of a program. And they can have a different set of, of pieces that can support this, this mitigation of suspension and expulsion. Add to that, within licensing, childcare licensing and QRIS, there are multiple types of licenses you can get. So there are family childcare licensing policies. There are center-based licensing policies. There are school-age licensing policies. And they're not coordinated across those levels within the same state system. So our suggestion to help support children with staying enrolled is, is suggestions for ways that we can align these frameworks across these systems because families don't stay in one system. You know, a family could, could spend time in a family child care, a center-based care, and a state pre-K program, and in each one of them experience a different set of behavioral guidelines and, and discipline policies. And so, you know, just pointing that out and showing ways to streamline across that is where we're going. Wow, I really wasn't aware of the multiple layers and the complexity at play here. What do you think Delaware practitioners and policymakers should take away from this discussion on exclusionary discipline practices in early childhood education? 
And what do you think the local implications are for policy and practice development? Well, Delaware is one of the few states, actually, that has policies in every segment of their system. They don't use the same word in every segment of their system. They use suspension and expulsion out of childcare licensing and in their CCDF plan and in our Head Start guidelines. The QRIS in Delaware, though oddly, uses the term termination rather than expulsion. We know termination means expulsion. And now I think what we need to really execute on is, is our data collection and evaluation within our local framework. We know we're trying to take steps to mitigate it, but what we need data on is what is really helping get programs to a place where this isn't even a concern. So we do have different sorts of mental health consultation pieces. We have a lot of of investment in maternal child health and home visiting. I think that there's a piece to, to play there in parenting support and parenting education that can help parents reinforce positive behavior habits in the home that would then translate into a group setting and support for parent teacher communication and collaboration. We're doing the good work, but we're not collecting the data that could really show us where we really have have major successes and where we might need to shore up our work a little bit. So so while the state has said that at least in childcare programs you have to report if you suspend or expel a child, what exactly that would look like and how could you do that without getting a negative repercussion from that hasn't been made clear. But I also think that kindergarten programs could try to find out what was the continuity like for early childhood programming or was this a child who maybe was in a number of different programs over time? That would be a clue. But also, I don't think that we do as much as we could linking the the school-age childcare, before and after care, and summer care with our K-12 system, and how the behavioral expectations in those programs line up with our behavioral expectations in our K-12 school day would be helpful to children and the practitioners in both systems. Dr. Buell, thank you for those insights. Is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation about exclusionary discipline? Well, I guess what I'd like to add is that people are doing the best they can. And exclusionary discipline, while it is problematic, it's much better than the alternative. And what the alternative is, is is actual physical discipline, like corporal punishment. So, I mean, if we have a, a ways to go, but we certainly have come a far away, right? So I think that that is a real positive. And I think that as we keep looking for ways to support people, supporting children, we will just get further and further to a place where children, we can figure out how we accommodate to the children rather than feeling like we have to exclude them. That's wonderful. We'd like to thank you for being here on the E4E podcast today. Thank you very much, Dr. Buell. Thank you. This is great. For more information about Dr. Martha Buell's work, please visit our website, udell.edu backslash PPE and navigate to the E4E podcast or follow the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udell.edu backslash PPE.